Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's amazing when we spend the time to think about it. It's amazing that Jesus prays. He's God. So in our human understanding, we would kind of tend to think that, well, since he's perfect and he doesn't have any sin to confess and he's divine, that he wouldn't have to pray. After all, he's the one that we pray to. But he didn't just pray a little. Jesus prayed seriously, more seriously than you or I pray. At the end of a long day when we're getting ready to shower and take out our contacts and brush our teeth or whatever else it is we do to settle down, that's when Jesus was heading out into the wilderness for an all-nighter in prayer. He went to the desert for a month, over a month, 40 days to pray. He prayed in front of people. He prayed by himself. He prayed to the point of sweating blood. So if Jesus, the perfect man, the one that we should imitate, God incarnate himself was constantly spending time in prayer and meditation, then we should be too. But why did he pray so much? Well, it gave him strength. It gave him unity with God the Father. It says in the scripture, as the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sickness, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. It would recharge him. It would give him strength. So prayer, in so many ways, is for our sake. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that God already knows what we need. We're not informing him of what we need. When we confess our sin, we're not informing him of something that he didn't know. In fact, he knows our sin far better than we know our sin because he paid for every single one of them individually. So prayer is this incredible gift that's given to us. And we have the Spirit We have this communion with God that we need to avail ourselves of. And by the way, there is something to be said. I don't know if you've ever prayed out in nature alone. There's something to be said for being out in the wilderness. I don't know if Secor Metro Park counts as the wilderness, but some of the best prayer times I've had have just been walking in the trails at Secor, in the rain when nobody else is around, or in the Arboretum when nobody else is around because there's this intimacy with God's creation. You might have heard of the term ACTS as it relates to prayer. It's like an acronym, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Well, I remember from pretty early on, my dad had taught me that we can use the Lord's Prayer as a template for prayer as well, taking each supplication that Jesus uses. So, uh, you know, praying for his kingdom to become, praying to hallowed be thy name, blessing God's name, praying for his will, for his kingdom, for confessing our own sins. All these things are uh, kind of springboards that we can use to, to pray. But the Lord's Prayer is not just a template for praying. We're, we're covering the Lord's Prayer in our evening services this summer. It's not just a template for praying, but it's a template for living. So each of these supplications, seeking his kingdom, seeking his his will to be done, his forgiveness, forgiving others, these are all things that should characterize our lives. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the prayer, your will be done, and unpack 
how this will affect our prayer, and then more importantly, how it will affect our life. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and this is the focus for tonight, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father in heaven, I pray that as we look into your word tonight that you will be in our midst, send your spirit like you promised, guide my lips and our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we talk about the will of God being done, it's going to be important to spend just a few minutes talking about what exactly is meant by the phrase, the will of God. Because this idea of the will of God can mean different things, a number of different things throughout Scripture. So in order to understand the impact of this prayer and what Jesus is really calling us to do, we need to understand, we need to be able to differentiate between these different kinds of wills of God. And people have written books on this. I mean, there are theology books explaining in great detail, very thoroughly, what Scripture teaches on the wills of God. But I don't want to do that tonight. I don't want it just to be a discourse in theology. But theology is important. Theology is the study of God. And it's important because theology actually teaches us how to live. It shows us how we should live. So understanding, in this case, understanding what it means by saying the will of God, understanding that is the starting point to understanding what Jesus is calling us to do in this passage. So the two kinds of the wills of God that we're going to talk about tonight are his sovereign will and his moral will. His sovereign will and his moral will. Some people also include a third kind of will, his permissive will, basically saying that God permits evil but distinguishes it from his sovereign will because we know God's not the author of sin. We're not really going to go down this path. This is more the type of, path, or type of question that if you go to our truth and life classes, you'll hear in more detail. But sovereign will and moral will. So first, what's God's sovereign will? So God's sovereign will, when we say God's sovereign will, what we mean is what actually happens, what actually comes to pass. Being sovereign, sovereignty, essentially means being in charge, like an emperor, a sovereign. So God's sovereign will is what he sovereignly decrees. So this is also sometimes called his decretive will, what he decrees. It's the type of will that we're talking about when we say nothing, outside, nothing ever happens outside the will of God. And the truth is, nothing ever does take place outside God's sovereign will. He controls all things. And it's a reality, and it's shown in Scripture, but it can be kind of a hard pill to swallow. A lot of people don't like the fact that God is in charge of everything. And honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, we all probably don't like the fact that God is in charge of everything. At least we don't at first. And we don't like it because it raises a lot of uncomfortable questions. Things like, well, if God's sovereignly in charge of everything, but something bad happens, how can God be good? How could God condemn somebody if he's ultimately in charge of them to begin with? 
And we don't like this idea of God being sovereignly in charge of everything because if God is in charge of everything, what's the implication of how much we're in charge of? It's nothing. And we don't like that. But what starts as a source of angst and discomfort and even anger at God for this reality will turn into a tremendous source of comfort and great rest once we understand what Scripture says, which is that God is good. All of the time, God is good. And he's on our side. He advocates for us. If we follow Jesus, God is on our side. So the fact that God is in control of everything doesn't frighten me anymore. In fact, it is a comfort to me. And I know that because whatever happens in my life was not a mistake. There's never been a single moment in time when God said, whoops, didn't expect that. Now we need to figure out how to fix it. So we have all these hard things happen to us where we question, well, why did that happen? An example in my own life, you know, a couple years ago, one of, one of our kids, Vinaya, he fell into a fire pit in our backyard and suffered some pretty bad burns, his whole arm, all the way, you know, his hand, and then kind of all down his side, got burned pretty good. And right when that happened, we probably couldn't have told you exactly why it happened. But as it unfolded, we saw God's faithfulness in so many ways. First, in just the sheer protection. I mean, he fell in the fire, and as a three-year-old, something pulled him out of the fire, like a second later. It could have been so, the actual injury should have, could have been so much worse. Uh, but then all these other things too, how, how we've grown through it, how he's grown through it, how we've had the chance to witness to so many people and meet so many other people and talk about the gospel because of it. And it really has been a pivotal, a pivotal point, especially for Bryce, my wife, in, in having joy. She became more joyful, crazy as it sounds. Her joy in the Lord increased through that. But even now, I think that without this knowledge that God is in control of everything, I think we'd be paralyzed by fear. I think that I would be spending all my time trying to protect my children and make sure that no horrible accident like that ever happens again. But I'm resting in God's sovereignty. I can say, well, here's a hard thing, and God brought us through it, and we could see him bring us through it, and we could see he was good, and now I know whatever the next hard thing is that we face, he's going to bring us through that as well. So these are some pretty big claims I'm making about God being in charge of everything. How do we know it's true? Well, because it says it all throughout the scriptures. So here's just a few verses. There's far more than this, but this is just a, a few of the examples. Ephesians 1, it says that we were predestined according to his purpose, God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we see this word predestined or predestination, meaning that God determined beforehand what would happen. And then it says it works all things according to, again, his will, his sovereign will. Lamentations, going back to the Old Testament. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So all things that happen, whether it's good or bad, happen because God in his sovereign will ordained it. In Colossians, it says, all things have been created through him, that's Christ, and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that's out there, the entire universe is held together by God. And then Romans 9, this passage just has all sorts of teachings about 
God's sovereignty. Honestly, I probably could have just read Romans 9 front to back and called it a day. But there's just one point I want to focus on. Paul anticipates, Paul is the author, he anticipates these, (laughs) these responses and these questions that we're going to have. Like, is God unjust for condemning somebody even though he's sovereign over them? So he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? We see this theme all over of God being the potter and us being the clay, us we people being the clay. And it's such a great description of the reality of our position before God. Our friend Nick, Nick Mason, he's, he works with pottery. And if you want to take a lump of clay and make a bowl, or take a lump of clay and make a, a pot, that would be his decision. That clay bowl couldn't say, why are you doing this to me? That is our position before God. We are the created, and he is the creator, and we, we really don't have any position to say, that's not fair by my judgment. At the end of the day, we just need to trust in the scriptures and let go. We need to stop kicking against the goads. So when the Bible teaches us things we don't like, rather than huffing and puffing and explaining why, oh, he didn't really mean it like that, we just need to accept it and swallow our pride. And that doesn't even mean that we're fully going to understand it. There's all sorts of things in scripture that I can't wrap my little mind around that are true, things like the eternity. I can't wrap my mind around the eternity of God. I just can't comprehend it, or the Trinity. There are things I know about the Trinity. I know it's th- these three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. There are certain facts that we know to be true, but I can't wrap my, my mind around it. But that doesn't make it any less true, just because I can't wrap my small human mind around these concepts. And God's sovereign will is one of those things that we might not understand we might not, it might not resonate with us. But that doesn't mean it's not true. All right, so God's sovereign will is what actually happens. But not everything that actually happens is in line with how he commands us to act. And this is where that second will of God comes in. So the second will of God we're going to talk about is his moral will. His moral will is what he commands in his law. It defines what's right and wrong. You also might have heard it called his preceptive will. A precept is like a commandment, what's right and wrong. So here's a kind of an extreme example, but hopefully illustrates the point. So imagine that you're driving home from here to your house and somebody cuts you off in traffic. So you go and chase them down and murder them. Well, if that happened, would that have been God's will for you to go chase them down and murder them for cutting you off? Well, it depends. Obviously, that is not God's moral will. It's wicked. It's in violation of his sixth commandment and all sorts of other things. It's not God's moral will. He would not want that. But if that's what actually happened, if that's what actually unfolded, it would be part of his sovereign will, his sovereign plan. So for reasons that we don't always understand, there are these differences between his sovereign will and his moral will. We can also think of God's sovereign will as his secret will, meaning we don't know what God's sovereign plan is all the time. Will you be married one day? 
Will you have children one day? Will you be healed of your disease? Will you die at a ripe old age, peacefully surrounded by your children and grandchildren? These things are unknown. They're part of his secret will. But there are certain things we do know. Like, should we go ahead and live giving in to anger and lust all the time? No, absolutely not. Does he want us to be patient and generous and tell people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, yes, he does. So how can I presume to make these absolute claims about the will of God? Because it's not a secret. He told us in the words of the Bible very clearly what he desires. We need to be careful making claims about the will of God because we do know his commandments, but we don't know his sovereign will. And we need to be careful not to confuse the two. Let me give you an example. I had a friend in college. He was a couple years older than us, but we had started spending a lot of time with him. He claimed to be a Christian, and then he started dating this girl who was not following the Lord. And as I'm sure you can imagine, it was not a good situation. He had his own apartment, and he and this girl were basically just leading each other in this downward spiral of sin. He started stepping out, pulling back from all his church and ministry, that's how we knew him, and uh, pulling away from everybody, basically. So we had probably half a dozen of us essentially had an intervention. We sat down with him, and we said, what he was doing, the way he was living, is not good. He should not be pursuing this girl in the way that he was. And his response, I still remember it. <laughs> he said, well, I've been praying about this a lot lately. And the Spirit has just really put it on my heart to be dating this girl. Well, obviously, the Spirit of God does not put things on our heart that fly in the face of the written Word of God. He tempts no one to sin. So we need to be really careful in making claims like this. There could be all sorts of things that we might feel like doing and might even want to say, oh, God wants me to do this like dating someone who isn't following the Lord. But we need to check our desires and how we feel against what we actually know to be true from the Scriptures. So hopefully at this point, we have a little bit of understanding about the two wills of God. God's sovereign will, what actually happens, and God's moral will, His law, what He wants us to do. So when Jesus prays, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which one does he mean? Well, when he's praying your will to be done, what he means is God's moral will. He is praying for God's moral will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we know this? Well, well first, because Jesus knows that God's sovereign will is always done. It's always done in earth and on heaven, just by nature of God's being sovereign. But more specifically, we know because of this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. God's moral will is the will that always happens in heaven, but does not always happen here on earth. In heaven, there's no sin. Sinners have been cast away from God. God cannot abide sinful people. That's why he cast Adam out of the garden when Adam sinned. That's why he cast Satan out of his presence when Satan sinned, God does not allow unholiness to dwell with him. So in heaven, 
God's moral and his sovereign will are always done because there's no sin. But here on earth, only his sovereign will is always done. His moral will is not. So when Jesus is praying for God's will to be done on earth, what he is asking is for the people to obey the law of God. Jesus is asking for the earth to be more perfect, to be more in line with his law. Your will be done. He wants people to be more holy on earth. So I want to talk about how these principles impact our prayers, but then move on to how they affect our lives. So with prayer, the main, thing I want to, main point I want to make about prayer is that asking for God's will to be done is so much more than just tacking on the phrase, if you will, on the back of our prayers. In fact, I think we need to be careful because a lot of times, and maybe it's just me, but I suspect it's something that we all do, a lot of times when we do tack on that phrase, if you will, but only if you will, on our prayers, it's a way that we can avoid praying in expectation. We use it to hedge our prayers. Hedging is a way of reducing risk. Like if you're hedging your bet or hedging investment, you get an offsetting bet or investment to reduce the risk. We can do the same thing. We can hedge our prayers with God by making them not so risky. We can pray for things, big things, without really expecting them to happen and then just tack on that phrase, but if, only if you want them to, as a way of almost preemptively explaining why God didn't do them. I think a lot of times we don't say, your will be done like Jesus did in the garden. In faith, when Jesus prayed, when he asked God to take the cup from him and he said, but your will be done, not mine, that was submission to something that he didn't want to do. I suspect, usually when we use that phrase, it's not true submission to God, but it's because we are not expecting big things from God. We're not expecting people to change. We're not expecting to see answers to prayer. When in reality, what Jesus wants is for us to be praying way bigger things than we are. But I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about is how this impacts the way that we live. Jesus tells us to pray for the will of God to be done. We pray for what we want, right? If you're a kid and you want a new bike, you pray for a new bike. If you're a grown-up and you want a new job, you pray for a new job. We pray for what we want. So there's this underlying implication that if we're praying for the will of God to be done, we should actually want the will of God to be done. That's what Jesus is expecting. He wants us to actually desire the will of God to be done. What would that look like? What would our lives look like if we really, truly desired the will of God to be done, really, truly desired holiness here on earth like it is in heaven? Well, how would that look? We've got a very good model in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was preoccupied with doing the will of his Father. He was obsessed with it. His whole purpose in life, he was on this mission, and his whole mission was fulfilling the will of the Father. Not doing his own will, he was all out, 100%, following this goal, racing to the finish, to do the will of his Father. And if Jesus, the perfect man, is preoccupied with, with fulfilling the will of God, then we should be too. And this whole purpose of Jesus 
It started well before his, well before his birth. You see, in even the prophecies, hundreds of years, millennia even before Jesus was born, there are these prophecies about him. And they describe Christ as a tool in the hand of God, not coming to execute his own will, but coming to do the will of his Father. Isaiah gives us a picture. Isaiah 11, it says, He will delight, this is Jesus, the Messiah, He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and He will not judge by what His eyes see, nor make a decision by what His ears hear. Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 42. Can you tell Isaiah is my favorite book? Isaiah 42. My, behold my servant whom I uphold. He will not cry out or raise his voice, or make his voice heard in the street. So are you starting to see a theme here? Jesus, the Messiah, came to be a servant. He didn't come to execute his own will. He came to do what God wanted. And it rang true in his actual life. So in John, after he started his ministry, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the next chapter, he says, for I have come down from heaven. So his whole purpose in coming down, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is always giving up his own comforts and desires for other people. Case in point, when John the Baptist died, his cousin, he wanted to retire to the wilderness to get a break. He told his disciples, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. So they went away in a boat, and then 5,000 people ran to the other side of the lake. And it was already late by the time he got there, but he felt compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he taught them and then fed them. Do you ever feel like you just need a break? I think so. I think we're quick. I think we're quick to wallow and feel sorry for ourselves. And I'm guilty of it. We're busy. We have lots of kids. We have stressful jobs. And we just think, oh, I deserve a break. I'm not saying it's not hard and that these are not real difficulties. But Jesus did it without complaining. He was emotionally and physically drained. His cousin had just died. But he would still take his own desires and put them behind himself and serve people. He would pour into other people. He didn't have that selfishness that we have where we just want to preserve our own time and preserve our own comfort and preserve our own things. His whole ministry was characterized by giving things up. And most clearly in the garden. That's the most clear picture we have of Jesus doing God's will in his death. So in the garden, we see his prayer. He asks for his father to take this cup from him, but ultimately he submits to the will of God, not only giving up his own life, not only just being separated from the father, but truly having the full wrath of God descend on him for sins that he didn't commit, your sins and my sins, he did this, gave up everything he could want for us, people who didn't deserve it. So if we're going to do the will of God, like Jesus did the will of God, we need to be putting other people before ourselves. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. The life of a Christian is a life of serving. It's a life of giving things up for other people. 
We need to be giving up our money. We need to be giving our money away. Jesus had no money. He didn't hold on to these things. Last May, David was preaching through Matthew, actually in the Sermon on the Mount. Or no, not the Sermon on the Mount. It was the story of the five, feeding the 5,000, actually. And I remember him challenging us to give away our money, expecting to act in faith. I remember the way he said it. He said, give your money away. Do it. Just, just do it. Give away the 20. Give away the 50 that's in your wallet. Just do it. And that was convicting to me because I was not living in faith like that. So last year, we put that into practice, giving away more than we ever had before, more than we were, honestly, more than we were comfortable with. And sure enough, we didn't run out of money by the end of the year. We weren't making more, but somehow we didn't run out of money. God provided every step of the way. So we need to be giving up our things. We need to be giving up our time. We need to be giving up our time for our families first and foremost. So if you're a father, you need to spend time with your kids. For a number of years, uh, when my dad and I owned a, a package delivery company, I had some pretty crazy hours at points. And at first I really did not do a good job spending time with my family, prioritizing my children. It just wasn't my focus. I would come home from work tired out, you know, physically tired out, stressed out. And rather than spending time with them, what I would want to do is just go shower, have Bryce put the kids to bed. I would go in and kiss them goodnight and then be able to relax for a couple hours before I went to bed. And something that Pastor Jordan said, well, he wasn't Pastor Jordan at that time, but Jordan said to me, just made a comment. He said, your kids really want to be with you. And again, that was convicting to me because I wasn't making that a priority. As a father, I was depriving them of this good thing, a father that is spending time with his children. So we need to make making that a priority. And for mothers, I think a lot of times, all of your time is spent with your kids. But you need to work on doing it joyfully, like Jesus did. We need to be giving up our time to serve God. I really don't want to make it sound like I'm preaching some sort of prosperity message here, but there is true reward when, when we give up our things for Jesus, whether it's our time, our money, when we give up things to serve the kingdom of God. Jesus says it. He says, there's no one who has left brothers or mothers, brothers or sisters, fathers and mothers, or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, along with persecution, and in the age to come eternal life. And again, we've seen this to be true in our own life. So when I first got married about seven years ago, I had just moved back to Toledo from Alabama. So I really wasn't that plugged in in our church yet or in our friend groups, having kind of just been out, you know, for the last five years living in the South. And here we are coming up on a marriage, and I had some decisions to make regarding our family, regarding how much we were going to be serving the church, what our involvement was going to be. And it was something that we wrestled with. I, you know, we were scared. Honestly, I was scared that if, I, if we start having kids right away, then we aren't going to have the time that we want as a couple, the time to enjoy each other. We were scared that if we overcommitted and poured ourselves into ministry at the church, kind of the same thing, that we wouldn't have the time that we desired with each other. But I can tell you, we made decisions, <laughs> trusting God to serve in those ways. And I can tell you for sure, we are far happier now than when we got married. Closer to each other for having kids, closer, more joyful 
in our walks with God and because, of, because of how we serve the church and grown in love with all of you. So in every case, in every point I can think of in my life where I've trusted God and given up things or seen other people do it, there's much greater examples that we could talk about of people I know who've done the same thing and seen the same results. God has blessed it. So take a look at your own life. What will your legacy be? Will it be, oh man, that guy was really successful. Great career. Or, oh, she's got the cutest family. Or was it, they were selfless people. They served. They served people. We need to live in a way that makes it clear that we want to do the will of God. So I want to close by talking about this last phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. I want to talk for a minute about heaven. What is heaven? What is heaven like? Heaven is filled with worshiping God. So if we want to live for heaven, we need to be worshiping God here on earth. The more room that we make in our hearts for worshiping God, the less room we are going to have for complaining and sin. There's going to be no complaining in heaven. I've been reading the book of Numbers lately, and it's really struck me. I don't know if you've read it recently. It's this is when Israel was brought out of the land of Egypt, and they're wandering around in the desert. And this generation of the Hebrew people just saw the most clear signs imaginable that God was on their side. He saw, or they saw the, the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw this Red Sea being split apart. They literally had the Shekinah glory, this cloud and fire of God's presence that they could physically look at the other side of the camp and see with their own eyes all the time. But were they faithful and joyful? And were they consumed with worshiping God like you would think they would be? Well, no. They grumbled and complained. And they didn't trust in God all the time. And the point isn't that, oh, they're just so much worse than us. The point is that even though we've been blessed in these ways, we can do the same thing. We still tend to complain and grumble just like the Israelites did. So I mentioned we, my dad and I used to own this, this package delivery business. And when we owned the business, a pretty common theme in, in our company and really that entire industry in general was complaining. If you've worked at FedEx, you've probably seen it. People love complaining. They complain about their job. They complain about their boss. They complain about their pay. And to be fair, a lot of times we were asking him to do some pretty unpleasant things. Like, hey, man, I know it's Friday night. Can you come and pick up a shift tomorrow morning? Or asking them to go lug around 150-pound packages in the rain all day when it's 40 degrees out. So when I made the transition last year to a more corporate work setting, I think in my mind I was kind of expecting people to complain less. Part of that was I thought, oh, you're moving to a more professional setting. People are going to be behave, you know, behaving a little more professionally, which in some ways they were. But more than that, I, just, I really couldn't fathom what there would be to complain about 
Like literally, they just had to go to work, sit down at a desk in the air conditioning, type in front of a computer for eight hours, and then go home and get a paycheck. And that was it. But to my surprise, they still complained just as much. There's always something to complain about. Let's not be like this. Let's not be complainers. Worship is an antidote to grumbling. So what our lives should look like is not the complainer. We should be the ones who, when we see the negative, when we are tempted to complain, we turn on worship music. We focus on the blessings. We think about who God is. And we need to be the type of Christians who are consumed with doing the will of God. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that you set such a great example for us in giving up your life and giving up yourself and all your desires. Lord, I pray that we will contemplate our own lives, that we will think about the ways that we are being selfish. Father, and I pray that we will give them up, that we will put our own desires behind us like you. And may you pour out blessing on us and our families and our church and this city because, not because we're special, but because we're being faithful to your word and you are a rewarder of those who seek him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.